Right, this is Jennifer Stone. We'll drop the shadows out of sight. We've had enough of this darkness. <laughs> I have a note here from a, a listener asking me to finish The Little Mermaid. Well, I'll get around to it, I promise. I forgot it. But it's it's sitting home on my desk with all the other beautiful things. I've decided that things being how they are, that... That's all there's time for these days. You know, just one more beautiful thing, one more story or painting or even a movie. I've become addicted to the Sundance channel. Uh, and anything to get away from the news, yes. Uh, the end times, I was informed by a woman on the street the other day, um, We've come to the end times, she said. Uh, <laughs> I said, no such luck, kid. We're going to live on and suffer. <laughs> I I think somebody somewhere once said, uh, we've narrowed it down to the butcher knife and the mockingbird. But that's, that's the dark side. I think, uh, yes, I'll save the Little Mermaid and I'll... Read you a little bit of something today written years ago about J. Robert Oppenheimer. You remember the dude who invented the bomb. So I, I thought of that as I was sitting watching Sundance. I recommend uh, the Sundance channel. I know we should only recommend radio where you can hear yourself think. But I think that the Sundance channel is the gift, the gift of my old age, these cable uh, TV channels. I, I I know they seem to be an indulgence, but the fact is that, uh, as everybody keeps telling me, most people in America think that the movies are where we learn everything, and I'm afraid that's about it. Gore Vidal said that that was our education, our history, our psychology, our sociology. Last night there was a movie on Sundance called Comrades in Dreams. Sundance has so many foreign films, the sort of things you won't find at the multiplex. It was a wonderful movie. It showed four different countries, little little towns, small towns, four small towns. And in each town, there was a local filmmaker, a provincial sort of person, you know. Uh, the movie they focused on, oh, Titanic was one of the films, and... The way people reacted to the movie Titanic in uh, Burkina Faso, well, let's see, right, Africa, India, South Korea, and the United States. It was absolutely amazing. 
especially the people who worked in the movie theaters. The saddest one of all was the woman in the United States down in uh, mainstream America. She was the saddest of all. I'm afraid the movies uh, supported her masochism. She saw how husbands, um, well, she spoke of her own husband, actually, and uh, they were all worried about the woman in Titanic, you know, Kate Winslet. She lives to be old, whereas Leonardo DiCaprio, the young actor who plays Jack, he dies for her, freezes to death in the sea. Fascinating. I was struck by the young man, a man in Africa. They asked him how he felt about people just disappearing into the sea forever. And uh, he was a philosopher. He said, he said how tragic it was never to reach your destination. And then he went on to say how terrible it would be to just be lost in the sea and have no body to give to your family, nothing to, to, uh, not remember you by, but no, 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 uh, physical self, yes, gone, lost. I thought of a film I saw earlier in the evening, a man in Pakistan up to his, uh, up to his hips in the water looking for his five children. His wife, I think he said uh, she had managed, he'd got her to uh, higher ground, but he was out there looking for his five children. He knew that they had drowned, but he couldn't leave without finding their bodies. Fascinating. Anyway, these movies, um, I think the most romantic, the most romantic images came from South Korea a woman who wept over the death of the dear leader, yes. Uh, she was definitely a romantic, and she definitely wept for her country, and she loved these romantic films. I I don't know, it reminded me of movies that Margaret Mead used to make. She would take contrasting cultures and show us, you know, how they raised a baby in all different parts of the world and how we are all so essentially the same and yet, and yet we have these different styles, these different ways of doing things. Basically, she showed us how uh, we still believe in magic, you know. <laughs> Whether it's whether it's the the mother in America, you know, trying to save her baby's life with uh, all the uh, all the cosmetics we make for the babies, or whether it was the mother in other places using uh, oh, let's call it uh, uh, <laughs> other magic, other magic. I can't describe it; it would upset you. Anyway, uh, I think that the the week we're going through now is particularly difficult, uh, at least for me, because I'm 76 now, and I remember where I was 65 years ago when they dropped the atomic bomb. Let's see, first on Hiroshima on August the 6th, and then on Nagasaki on August the 8th, was it, or 9th? 8th, I think, yes. Molly Ivins still complained that that was her birthday. God bless her. Anyway, uh, 
I was coming out of a movie somewhere in San Diego. I lived in La Jolla at that time. My father was on a hospital ship in the Navy somewhere out in the uh, South Pacific Theater, the end of the war, and uh, I came out of the movie. I think it was the Bridge of San Luis Rey, but I'm forgetting. I remember that a few years ago, I could remember what the movie was, but it's... It's melting, yes, it's all going into oblivion. What I do remember is the people in the streets celebrating the atomic bomb, the one that dropped on Hiroshima, saying how this would end the war. It was a general party mood. Anyway, uh, I have a little piece I brought in today that, um, oh gosh, it dates back to the 80s. I wrote it for the women's newspaper Plexus. It's called Oppenheimer Faust or Fraud. <laughs> and uh, it's all about this wonderful man who uh, personified for us the tragic sense. Uh, of course, he sold out all his friends. Anyway, hmm. I'll quote, let's see, at the beginning of the piece, there's an excerpt from a book called Oppenheimer, the Story of a Friendship, written, uh, published in 1966 by Haikon Chevalier, the man that he betrayed, that, that Oppenheimer betrayed. Here's what he writes about the guy who invented the atomic bomb. He writes, in my novel, The Man Who Would Be God, published 1959, I told the story. I told it with many of the circumstances changed and with characters wholly invented or greatly disguised. I told the story of an atomic scientist destroyed by his invention. It achieved what I wanted to achieve, which was to show that the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki was a tragic error which has plagued the world ever since, and that the human instrument through which this was accomplished was one of the most gifted, brilliant, selfless, and dedicated of men, imbued with a love of humanity that made him almost saintly, who was used by the powers for their own purposes, and eventually destroyed... I wanted to show that the whole venture of the making of the bomb was poisoned from the start. That it was a venture in which good men were committed to doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. And that it was doomed to create untold havoc. Okay, so my essay goes on to say that the story of J. Robert Oppenheimer has all the ingredients of a Greek tragedy. Pride goeth before a fall, and so do arrogance, ambition, romanticism, narcissism, and the American dream. <laughs> Back in 1982, there was a six-hour production on American Playhouse of, uh, well, I'll call it J. Robert Oppenheimer's Follies. <laughs> Sam Waterston played Oppenheimer. Let's see, his wife Kitty was played by Jana Sheldon. She was good, very good. Fascinating. The women in Oppenheimer's uh, life uh, 
very neurotic types, fascinating, uh, <laughs> in spite of criticism about its veracity, the show was an artistic triumph. It was a coming of age for a world soaking in post-atomic angst. Now, this was a play. It's not to be confused with a pertinent documentary, if you can find it. Um, it was called The Day After Trinity. I would put them on a double bill and double bill and show both uh, features to high school students. I, I think um, sometimes fiction can help us to understand uh, a truth. This father of the atomic bomb, this man who headed the wartime research project at Los Alamos was a sweet, brilliant guy. People in Berkeley adored him. His fall from grace was, if not Faustian, at least American. What the script, that is the script of the fictional account, what it glosses over is that in 1943, in order to get a security clearance, Oppenheimer lied through his teeth and sold out his friends on the left. That friend that he betrayed, Haikon Chevalier, says he was insecure. Oppenheimer was born in 1904, makes him my parents' generation. He belonged to a precarious Jewish elite. Now, the man he betrayed, Chevalier believes that Oppenheimer acted out of fear. In the end, Oppie, as his friends called him, didn't so much go to the devil as to that oblivion reserved for the terminally naive. As his alcoholic wife Kitty indicates in the play, his is the saint's script. He courts crucifixion. Oppenheimer's tragic flaw was his inability to imagine fully the long-range consequences of his actions, of course. I suppose he knew he wasn't inventing penicillin. He was blinded by ambition and desire, much like Oedipus Rex. And when his eyes were opened, he too put out his own light. His drama is the result of those wrong choices made at a time when that furious fight against fascism obsessed our nation. Back in 1954, I was a college student and I saw a film documentary of Oppenheimer. It was a short film. It was not um, this later feature film, The Day After Trinity. Uh, it was not required study. It was brought to the school by um, the then head of the drama department at Mills College, Art Lauterer. A wonderful guy. He, he, he even approved of Ezra Pound. Do you remember Ezra Pound kept giving speeches um, over in Italy? He uh, speechified for the Nazis, which, when he returned to the United States, got him put in the bug house. Anyway, um, there was a small and disinterested audience there. Um, 
I think that, yes, I think that Arch Lotterer was a little sad or disappointed that the uh, students, well, you know, uh, it wasn't their thing. He was trying to make us grasp the level of apathy in which we existed at that time. He told us all about J. Robert Oppenheimer, who was a broken-hearted man trying to reach out to people to make them understand the enormity of the tragedy that had been brought into our world by this mega bomb. Now, I haven't seen that film ever since. I don't know where it is. Uh, I have no knowledge of where it's available or even if it has been preserved. I've called a few places the film... Um, I, I can't seem to find, uh, well, its existence. I'm sure it's around somewhere. Somebody somewhere will find it for me. Uh, it gives us Oppenheimer speaking directly into the camera for perhaps, uh, half an hour to 40 minutes. Genuine despair. He weeps. His suffering is apparent on several levels. Physically, he is a wraith. Um, the eyes, I can't believe, his depth of expression is still with me after all these years. Through his tears at the end of the film, he makes a plea for what he terms affection between governments. That's a quote. He's asking for affection between governments. He was a living ghost in that film. Uh, it was 13 years before his death. Okay, Chevalier writes of him, he had a peculiarly haunting look, impossible to describe, but which one associates with a person who has been through a searing ordeal or who has pulled up stakes and gone over to the other side and then come back. When I later learned about the shaman, I at once realized that this was what he evoked. Well, that's the guy he sold out, writing about him, saying that he was a shaman. Wow. Anyway, my essay goes on to say that my first glimpse of Oppenheimer as a student was offset by what I learned about him later. I don't argue but that he had Christ consciousness, or whatever they're calling it this year. He had the awareness of the heroic figure in mythology, you know, the one who descends to the underworld, embraces his darker self. But Oppenheimer's tragedy is scarcely his own. We should remember that he took us with him. From a more jaded point of view, Oppenheimer was to the saint what Willie Loman was to the salesman. See Arthur Miller's play, Death of a Salesman, written in the 1950s. You remember Willie? He was the guy who was liked but not well liked. Oppenheimer was a brilliant theoretical physicist, but he was no Einstein. <laughs> You remember Einstein, he's the one who said that the nuclear uh, bomb had changed everything except us, except men's minds, right? Human nature is a constant. Uh, 
Oppenheimer was not a creative genius. He was simply a high-tech scientist. He had to settle for being a star. He's very famous. Now, in a June 1982 issue of Mother Jones, uh, there is an article by Hugh Drummond, M.D., fascinating, uh, a doctor. He writes that Oppenheimer's narcissism had a strange and protean quality. At Los Alamos, running his hand along the brim of his pork pie hat, like John Wayne, he commanded the greatest single collection of advanced scientists the world had ever known. Later, like someone out of Charles Dickens, he pronounced, We physicists have known sin. <laughs> Still later, when he was persecuted by Joseph McCarthy and stripped of his security clearance, he looked for all the world like Jesus Christ upon the cross. What I found evil about Oppenheimer was not his Faustian genius. It was not just his narcissism. It was that his narcissism was a stranger to him. <laughs> the next part of this essay goes on about a friend of mine who lived in Berkeley in uh, the 1980s, the late Matilda Moore. She she was once, yes, she, she ran a newspaper called The Grass Grassroots uh she remembers inviting Oppenheimer to dinner in 1938. Matilda told me, she said, he was such an attractive man. He liked a woman I knew, a waitress who was out on strike. He brought her roses and an algebra book. He loved mathematics. Over dinner one night, Matilda spoke to him of her concern over his involvement. Uh with the left, yes. She was then an activist. Um, uh, <laughs> when I knew her in the 70s, she was still an activist, right, and the 80s. But uh, she, Matilda, was afraid that Oppenheimer might mislead the workers. He finished her sentences for her, saying that, yes, intellectuals sell out the workers. According to uh, Chevalier, Oppenheimer always finished other people's sentences. He has become a legend of sorts since his death in 1967. There have been a number of efforts to evaluate his life. Fact is, his life is the least interesting aspect of his existence, whom the gods would destroy. They give what they want. Oppenheimer was grandiose, and he wanted power, fame. He was not an infantile Rambo, or a tyrant, or a torturer. He used his mind, but only part of it. <laughs> what was it? My favorite, uh, a woman elder on one of the islands where they blew up those atomic bombs. My father was over there when they did the testing. One of those uh, women elders said the Americans came, did their experiments. She said they were so incredibly smart. 
If only they knew what to be smart about. Anyway, Sam Waterston won an Emmy Award for his performance in the uh, play about Oppenheimer back in 82. The play goes on to suggest that his surface veneer, Oppenheimer's surface veneer and superficiality and frailty, uh, was at fault. Still, I think the whole thing is hard to swallow. Uh, this is a fallen angel, a death angel. A man who definitely believed uh, he was one of the better known Hebrew prophets, a latter-day voice crying in the wilderness. The trouble was it was his wilderness, handmade. Oppenheimer was the American dream, a nightmare. It's our nightmare of unprincipled achievement. This is this is all about, I mean... This was a poetic guy. He he attended ethical culture school from the age of six to sixteen. Doubtless he studied the classics there. Doubtless he knew the Greek concept of hubris. <laughs> In the play, we see Oppenheimer witness the bomb blast that follows the Trinity test. This is still a test, remember, not the subsequent bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, in which he took part in the planning stage, so much for not knowing what the damn thing was really capable of doing. In that scene, we see him quote from the Bhagavad Gita. You remember the uh, many-armed god Vishnu. Ah, is quoted, Uh, Oppenheimer quotes him, I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's accurate, but certainly smacks of the God complex, which all the moderns who are in love with the bomb seem to evidence when brought into its holy presence. You remember the thunder God, you remember Zeus, you remember Yahweh, Old Testament myths of fire and brimstone. The wheel has come full circle, and here we are. Now, we know that the worship of death began in the caves, in ancient man. He looked at the sky, he looked at the lightning. Oppie's remark is the most vainglorious statement recorded by any man in my lifetime. For my money, I'll take the remark we hear from his companion, which follows in the script of that old play. His friend says, his companion says, Now, we're all sons of bitches. That was my essay on J. Robert Oppenheimer, a man uh, that we were uh, glad to weep over for many, many years. I suppose if he'd been a nasty fellow, Edward Teller or somebody like that, you know, it would be easier to dislike him. Unfortunately, uh, he was a poetic and uh, his sadness is affecting, but I would hope that today's poets and prophets know better. This has been Jennifer Stone. I hope that the guys that are making all our fancy new weapons 
will stop to think what it is, you know, what it is they do. Edward Teller used to say, we send them up. Who cares where they come down? I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. This has been Jennifer Stone. Until then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. From the ones who walk in light, light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of The following candidate statements belong to the author of the statement only. My name is Faya Sayadi. I am an Iraqi Kurd, a doctor, a journalist, and a peace and human rights activist. I have had two shows in KPFA, Voices of the Middle East and North Africa and Labor Collective. The issues I'm very passionate about are victims of Katrina, women, children, and refugee issues, and displaced people everywhere. Also preventing honor killings and the death penalty. I am running with Voices for JusticeRadio.org. Vote for me and our slate. We will bring the voices of the voiceless to KPFA. My name is Kate Tanaka. I want to find ways to strengthen the station and empower those who provide all of us with the programming we so depend upon to be the informed citizens that are the hope of a decent society. Please vote for me, Kate Tanaka, and other candidates endorsed by the Independents for Community Radio. Thank you. It's 3.30, and you are tuned into KPFA and KPFB in Berkeley and KFCF in Fresno or online at kpfa.org. Please stay tuned. It's time.